Welcome to the Victory Life Church Podcast. We believe it's important to present an uncomplicated and uncluttered view of Christ and how we should live. We hope this podcast inspires you and helps build your faith. If you ever find yourself in the area, come check us out. For more information on services and events, visit us at vlcministries.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at VLC Plantation. I want you to open up your Bibles to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. We're about to enter a, a, some of the most controversial passage, probably in all the Bible, but I don't want you to get fixated on it, but we must cover it. As Jacob said, he bypassed it and left it to me, so that way I can take the fiery darts from you guys if we don't all agree. But I think God is going to use me this morning to help settle this matter once and for all, at least for those looking in online or you, here, you that are here this morning. But let's begin in verse 4. It is impossible for those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. I believe these next two verses and the rest of the chapter really help identify what's happening in those verses. Land that drinks in the rain, that's the glory of God, falling on it, that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessings of God. Now, the same land that it rained on, but this land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case. Another clue. Things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. For we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanting to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. 
God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By the way, we just read more scripture than many churches throughout our land and throughout the world read in a month or two months. We love God's word here in our church. The title of this morning's message is taking, on a stand, taking a Stand on What is Real. Taking a Stand on What is Real. I remember, I used to be a former Catholic. Any former Catholics here in the room? Okay, looking on our line. Yeah, I saw those hands. By faith, I saw those hands. And uh, I remember I was told that there was a purgatory. Do you remember that? I knew I wasn't good enough to go to heaven. But I didn't think I was bad enough to go to hell. But I knew I needed to suffer many, 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 many years for all the sins that I committed. Anybody felt like that? And thank God for purgatory because I knew I wasn't going to hell. And one day I would get to heaven, no telling how long I was going to be in purgatory. And that's the stand I took. And I began to read the Bible and I searched from cover to cover and could not find that place called purgatory Except in marriage. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> Scratch that. One day, one day, one day we will escape. So this morning, having fun, having fun. I love telling the truths of God and in, in, in having a little laughter as we tell the truth because I'm amongst believers and, uh, but there is a possibility there may be some unbelievers looking in online or past possibly here this morning. So I am trying to speak to two groups of people this morning. People that look at this passage here this morning, the four verses that I want to read again that has caused so much consternation, doubt, discouragement to the church. And these four verses are again. Actually, if you just read a few of the, ver- the words, you'll understand what I'm saying. It is impossible, it is impossible for those who fall away to repent. That's it, in a nutshell. It is impossible for those who've walked with God, talked with God, enjoyed the things of God, tasted the things of God, They fall away, and now they desire to repent of their sin. It's impossible. That's what the Scripture seems to be saying to many of us. So I would like to help us with that possibility on who these people are that God is talking about this morning. So in order to do that, a believer needs to understand to take a stand is the first thing I want to bring to your attention this morning. A believer needs to understand in order to take a stand. As you read this passage, it is very, very important 
not to get lost in the forest for the sake of the trees. You've heard that before, right? You open a book, you jump in the middle of the book, and you read a few pages, and then you think you can sum up what the author is trying to say to us. That's an impossibility. Or a letter, a letter sent to you, and you jump in the middle of the letter, and and you think you know what it's saying, and you don't know who it's addressed to, and uh, what the subject is about, and you draw some conclusions about the letter. That's what you don't want to do in this particular passage. Secondly, we must remember what the author is talking about. We have been talking about that this man, Jesus, remember, everyone thinks he's a man back then. The whole world thinks he's a man. There's only a few people that thinks he's the Messiah. This man was a criminal nailed to a tree. All the religious people said, listen, you do not believe that he's the Messiah. And if you do, there's going to be a price to be paid. This is how they're thinking. And even today, many people do not believe that Jesus is the truth and the way. In fact, I told you a few weeks ago that amongst evangelical Christians, a third of evangelical Christians do not believe that Jesus Christ is the only way. So that means he's not God in some people's minds. So I'm communicating to people today, as well as back then, that he's more than a man. He is Yeshua. Jesus is superior. He is better than any of these religious characters that they're accustomed to. Moses, Abraham... More important than the prophets. More important than the high priest who they were accustomed to. The high priest was like the pope to the Jewish people. After all, he went to the Holy of Holies once a year. No one else could do that. After he repented of his sins and then he offered atonement for the sins through a sacrifice for the nation of Israel. So Jesus is greater, superior, he is better than any of these religious characters that you've read about, been accustomed to. Now, I want to inform you of the subject matter that he's talking about right here. And in order to do that, you need to go to chapter 5, verses 5 through, excuse me, 8 through 11. So we understand what's happening. Remember, he's talking about Jesus better than the prophets. We're talking about that he's better than Moses. He's talked about the Sabbath. And now he's talking about Jesus, the high priests. And he's going to talk about Jesus as the high priest. Then there's going to be a little bit of a change of subject for a few paragraphs. And he's going to resume, and Jacob will resume next week. He'll be talking about the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. But he also talks about a subject of salvation in this time of parentheses. Notice in verse 8 of chapter 5. Although he was a son, we're talking about, of course, Jesus, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. And was designated by God to be the high priest 
in the order of Melchizedek. And then verse 11 kind of says, okay, we have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain this to you. And then Jacob talked about that last week because of their immaturity. So he's talking about salvation, and he's talking about Jesus being the high priest. That's the subject matter at hand as we begin to tackle verses 4 through the end of chapter 6. Salvation and Jesus being the high priest. Well, we're going to put a pause on talking about Jesus being the high priest to the very end of this subject. And we'll pick up on it in chapter 7. So really, the subject at hand is salvation. And the, as we dig a little bit deeper and zoom a little bit deeper, can a believer who loved God once walked with God, was involved in the activity of the Holy Spirit, turn, fall away, then decide to maybe repent, and now he can't. Can you commit such terrible sins, too much sin, to a point where you engage in that sin, ignore the revelations from God, ignore the wooing of the Holy Spirit, telling you, turn from your sin, turn from your sin. But you don't listen, and you turn away and engage in your sin for a long time, and then all of a sudden you decide, hmm, let me, let me, let me get back to Jesus. But you can't. Is that what this passage is talking about? Well, I want to bring to your attention, first of all, a Hebrew believer that is standing on solid ground. Remember, he's talking to Hebrew people in the first century. That's who the audience is. So we're going to look at this as if this passage is talking to a believer. And so we go back to chapter 6 and Here's the believer's credentials. It says, he has been enlightened. He has tasted the heavenly gift. He has shared in the Holy Spirit. He has tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Wow, this sounds like a great church member, doesn't it? Sounds like a great saint, a believer that you want on your team, Jacob. But there's some problems here. One of the things I want you to see in this passage is, who is he talking to? If you'll notice with me in verse 1 of chapter 6, we see a group of people that he's talking to when he says, let us leave, or he uses us or we. Very, very important. And then in verse 4, the group changes. It says, it is impossible for those, them, their. So he's talking about two different groups of people. So notice that when you read chapter 5 and chapter 6. There's the we and the us, and then there's the them and the there, and the those and the thee. 
Very important to think about as you begin dissecting this particular chapter. Now, here are some truths that you can stand on that are real, if indeed this is a believer. First of all, this person supposedly committed some terrible sin. I can't think of any more terrible sins than many of the characters in the Bible committed. They committed some terrible sin, and now they want to turn back to repent, and yet it seems like it's an impossible thing for this person to do, right? You go back to the verses in verse 4. It says, it is impossible for this person, if they fall away, to repent. That's what it says. Well, let me bring to your attention that a believer can repent of their sin. A believer can repent of any sin. Let me just draw your attention to some passages that will help you understand if you're here this morning or looking in online that you, I don't care what you've committed, what kind of sin that you've committed, there is no sin that Jesus has not died for in the believer's life. Isaiah 55, 7 says, let the wicked... If you think this is a believer, this is a wicked person that fell away from the things of God. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. I remember dating a Nazarene girl. And every time I said something wrong or if I did something wrong, I I, I was not right with God. And I didn't know if there, there came a point in time where maybe I did too many sins and they piled up too high for God to climb over the top to, to see me anymore. And therefore, I couldn't repent of my sins. And Jeremiah 3 tells us, once again, a cry is heard on the barren heights for the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel because they have perverted their ways and have forgotten the Lord God. Hmm. Return, faithless people, and I will cure you of your backsliding. Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Zechariah 1.3. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. So let's take a stand on this. All believers can repent of any cotton-picking sin you've ever committed in this entire life. That's the good news. You can repent. So some of you are thinking, oh, hallelujah, I can go off this week, I can live a life of sin, and I can do what I want, because I know God's going to forgive me. Now, it has caused some people who are believers to say, that kind of attitude is apostasy, and that's the kind of person I'm talking about that's deliberately turning their back on God. There's no way they can get saved. Well, let me caution you. God knows how to take care of his children. And so the second thing I want to put in your mind that you can take a stand on is that believers are disciplined. If you think you can get away with sin... Then let me tell you about some news found in 1 Corinthians. We just celebrated the Lord's Supper. We know for sure that he warns us, don't take the Lord's Supper. Act like everything's okay in your life. You come in the church, you have a smile, and yet you're miserable, you're mad, you're angry, 
and you're living in sin, and you take the Lord's Supper like you're sharing with everyone else what we all have in common, that Jesus died for your sins, and yet you hadn't even confessed your sins. Here's what he said in 1 Corinthians 11. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, we are judged in this way by the Lord. We are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So, this person that keeps on sinning, that does not repent, God comes after that believer and he disciplines them. He also said to the believer, there is a sin unto death. That means when the Holy Spirit's knocking on your door, telling you and me to repent of our sin. He's told you over and over and over again, leave your life of sin. You don't listen. There could come a point in the believer's life that they commit a sin unto death. John said that, but also 1 Corinthians reinforces that, that that is a possibility. So that the person that thinks somehow that this believer is getting away with sin and, uh, and there's no way he can turn back to God and repent of his sin, don't worry about that person because God will discipline that person. Now, here's why. Here's something you can take a stand on. A believer has eternal life with God. This is the reason he's going to discipline him. So, this helps us interpret this passage. That it's, is it a believer or an unbeliever? First look at what a believer has. Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You've heard that. I've heard that. Many people don't know that, so you need to communicate that to them. Ephesians 2, 8 tells us that you're saved from hell and you have eternal life. So it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one should boast. So you call on the Lord. He gives you the gift of eternal life. Now, here's a real clincher for those who think that they can lose eternal life. Now, notice I'm using biblical words and not pop culture words like, like once saved, always saved, or you can lose your salvation. I'm going to use scriptural words. God said he gave you a gift of eternal life. Now, in 1 Peter 2, 3, 2, 23, it says, For you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but an imperishable seed. Boy, if I had to camp out and take a stand on any passage in the entire word of God about eternal security, about eternal life, there it is, 1 Peter 1.23. You are born of an imperishable seed. In human life, you are born of a perishable seed. That's why we're all going to die. But when you're born again, you are born by the spirit of the living God, given the spirit of God, and you will live forever 
forever because it is an imperishable seed. It's from God. God is forever, forever and everlasting. And you are forever and everlasting. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Give God a praise clap in the house of God. Thank you, Jesus, for these promises. Imperishable. How can you lose something that's imperishable? Whew. Then John goes on to say and reinforce it. I verily, verily, I tell you, whoever hears my words and believes on him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death unto life. I always tell people, some of you have dual citizenship. I don't. I'm an American, born American. My grandpa's from Greece. My grandma's from Ireland. But, uh, but I'm still an American. But I actually have citizenship somewhere else. You guessed it. Heaven. I have one foot in heaven and one foot on earth. Some of you got one foot on earth and one foot on, in hell. You all do. And this is the good news that will help you get one foot in heaven and one foot on earth. Well, he continues in 1 Corinthians 6 and says, do you, and here's another reason why it's imperishable. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. We're building a brick house that you can take a stand on, solid ground. These are truths that you can stand on that are real. John says, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Oh, they think they're so powerful that they can wiggle out of God's hand and lose their salvation or lose eternal life. Excuse me. Jude 24 says, now this plays a, a key part into this verse because this verse says in chapter 6, verse 4 says, it is impossible if they fall away to repent. Notice this passage in Jude 24, 25. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling. What? It says, if so, some people believe this is talking about a believer, and he's fallen away. Well, who's right? Your thinking on this passage or the reality of what God said? Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power now and forever. Two more. Romans 8, 29. I, I needed these passages because when I, got, I told you this before, after two weeks of getting saved, you know, I said some things when I fell on my knees and asked God to be my Savior. Then I heard, within those next two weeks, I heard people tell me about all their experiences, how they got saved, and I wanted to duplicate that. So therefore, I thought I was lost, or therefore, I didn't know if I was saved. And I grieved for two weeks. I mean, grieved and cried. And thought I was not saved because I didn't say the right words. I thought it was something like a, a magic formula. Say the right words and presto it will happen. Until I finally went to God's word and looked at all these passages. 
These things I have written that you may know that you have eternal life. Ron, thank you, God. He's written these things so that you and me can know that we have eternal life. So Romans 8, 29 says, for those God foreknew. Ah, this is going to get into those who believe in election, predestination, as well as um, destination. For those who he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he has glorified. And this is in the present tense. And then Romans 8, 38 through 39. I love this. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise be to God. Now, I want you to write this down. I don't have it up here. Romans eleven twenty nine. Besides the one that I just told you about in 1 Peter, this is a very short one that helps us understand eternal life is eternal. For God's gifts and his call can never be withdrawn. He will never go back on his promises. He gave us a gift, an imperishable seed. Let me repeat that one more time. For God's gift of eternal life and his call can never be withdrawn he will never go back on his promise wow i don't know about you but that is good news to every believer because we've committed some nasty sins haven't we don't act like i'm not talking to you We've all committed some nasty sins. I've sat where you sat trying to think about the preacher's preaching. Oh, how did I get that thought in my mind? Get it out, God. He's going to kill me. He's going to zap me. How can I think about that in the house of God, let alone outside the house of God, right? Have you ever been there? There's nothing that can separate you from God. Just remember this, though lest you think you can take advantage of his grace in such a way that you can get away with God disciplining you. He will discipline us because he loves us. The discipline is to make us more like his son. But if you reject that and reject that and reject that and reject that and reject that, you might get sick. You might even die. Warning, though, because someone is sick, because someone died, do not be like Job's friends. I'm going through the book of Job right now in my reading through the Bible in a year. Do not become a self-appointed judge and think you know the inside of someone's heart what's happening in their lives. Because if you and me got zapped for every sin we've committed, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. Amen. But it can happen. Okay. Is this talking about a believer? Now I'm going to switch gears and look at 
Let's see if it's an unbeliever. Um, by the way, can I make one more little point on this section? Great theologians think on this subject. It could be hypothetical, but forget about the hypothetical. They, they think this could be a, a possible case for what they call a rhetorical argument or what they call a reductio ad absurdum. Are you speaking English? Yes, I am. It could be a rhetorical argument or a reductio ad absurdum. That means it is a believer who has, who has been sinning and he has done some awful things and uh, he thinks he cannot uh, still be saved because actually as you read the rest of the chapter, it's reinforcing what God said he has done and will do in the believer's life, right? I, listen to the promises I gave to Abraham. I promised on an oath. And, and by the way, I'm not going to forget the things you have done. He's telling them. He's reassuring these believers in this chapter of these things. But he's making a case and an argument. This is a rhetorical argument. Let's just, just suppose your line of reasoning that you think you could commit such a sin that God won't forgive well, that's not biblical, but, but let's say let's go along and think about that. Okay, there's a sin that you've committed that he will not forgive you of. And, but then you're trying to go back to him to get some repentance. And, and, and if you try to repent again, you're basically agreeing with everyone because you already left the faith. You're already agreeing with everyone that Jesus deserves what he got on the cross so you're re-crucifying him on the cross, and, and you agree with the, the rest of the public. Uh, you, 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 you agree with them that Jesus deserved what he got, and you're, you're, you're committing and submitting him to open shame. That's what ne would need to take place. That's called a rhetorical argument. Carrying out your line of argument or reasoning that, uh, okay, I'm lost, and, or I'm saved, and, and I think I'm losing my salvation, and can I really repent? And, and so go ahead, and let's, let's, let's talk about that line of reasoning, and it would be called a rhetorical argument or a reductio de absurdum. And so many theologians believe that's exactly what's taking place in this chapter. It's a believer. Who, who thinks they can lose their salvation and he's giving his line of reasoning and argument and the author is saying how absurd this is. You can't, you can't make Jesus go back on that cross and suffer that open shame. Does that make sense? Okay, that's the believer. That was just some little tidbits for those who want to go a little bit deeper on this subject. Now, I want to talk to you about if it's a believer. Excuse me, unbeliever. Let's look at it again. We're going to read it, verse 4 through, 4 through 6. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, that if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Okay. Now, many of you are wondering, first of all, could you be an earthly member or church member and not be a heavenly church member. You could be a member of the earthly church and not be a member of the heavenly church. So let me help explain something to you. It looks like at face value that this person has been enlightened about the things of God. He's tasted the heavenly gift. He shared in the activity of the Holy Spirit. He has tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. But does that make him a believer? 
Let me explain the situation to you that may be helpful. Let's use the nation of Israel. After all, he's talking to the Hebrews, and he does constantly go back to Israel's history. All the Hebrew people, no matter what they believed about Yahweh, were set free from the bondage of sin. All of the Hebrew people experienced the mighty powers of God through the ten miracles that I don't want to repeat it at this time. All of them, believers and unbelievers, saw God part the Red Sea. All of them, believers and unbelievers, tasted the manna in the wilderness. All of the 12 spies went into the promised land, came back, tasted of the fruit of the land, but yet only two spies believed that that was the promised land that they can go and conquer. The other 10 spies doubted and never entered the land. Does that give you a little uh, photo? What was those Polaroid photos? Snapshots in a moment in time and helping you realize that Wow, they experienced everything that the believers experienced. And yet, they were not believers. God also said there are some Hebrew people that could not repent of their sin. Do you remember Esau when he gave away his birthright? Hebrews 12 talks about it, about it keeping in the same book that we're studying in said that he wept bitterly and he wanted to repent and he wanted to get back that birthright, but it was an impossibility. Usually when we hear the word impossibility, almost always it is used with the unbeliever. Now, can you look like a real Hebrew but not be a believer in Yahweh? Let's just look at the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You talk about tithing on all that they had, they, they were spectacular at that. Talking about praying in public, they prayed constantly. Talk about fasting, they fasted. Talk about knowing the word of God and reading it, they did that. Talking about looking religious, they looked the part. It is very possible for you to be sitting in this church this morning or looking in online. And you've been around believers so long that you look like one of them, but you are not one of us. So it is very possible for these truths to be applied to an unbeliever. What about Judas? Didn't Judas, wasn't he numbered with one of the 12? Didn't Judas even go into the communities when God commissioned them and gave them the power to do miracles? Do you think Judas did miracles? I believe he did. I can back that up. Let me take you to Matthew chapter 7. Remember, many, many people who say they believed in God did do things for the kingdom of God. It says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Here's, here's, here's the punchline. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? And in thy name have cast out devils? And in thy name done many wonderful works? Isn't that what this passage is talking about in Hebrews chapter 6? And then I will profess to them, 
key word. I never knew them. Depart from me. Now, I want to pick up on that again. Some people have a hard time accepting this. But notice I'm using the truths from God's word rather than cliches by using the word eternal, never. Let me reinforce this never bit with 1 John 2.19. Now, it's talking about people like the Pharisees, like Judas, like people that come to church who are living in sin, who have not really totally embraced Christ. They have not surrendered all. Here it is. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been one of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be become plain that they all are not of us. That is who I believe that this passage is talking about to these Hebrew people who, who saw all the things that transpired in the history of Israel, heard about it, read about it, and experienced all the things that the apostles experienced. Some of them witnessed the miracles of God. Remember, this, this was written before 70 AD, before it was destroyed. And uh, they, they, they were listening to the CNN news. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. I mean, I didn't mean to bring, honestly, I didn't mean to bring up news like ABC and, and all these channels. Even Fox News now, too. Okay, I'll just throw Fox in there. Half of it's good, half of it's not, from my opinion. Okay, they were listening to the news. They're listening to news that tell you uh, that there's more than two genders. They're listening to the news. And, and they're convinced that Jesus was a criminal after they've been hanging around believers, hobnobbing with the believers, left everything in their home, left Israel, hanging around the Gentiles who they're not supposed to hang around. And all of a sudden they're going, oops, am I doing the right thing? The persecution's getting hot. I'm missing my family, my friends. I'm missing Egypt. I'm thinking of going back. That's what they were tempted with. God explains very clearly, they left us because they were never one of us. Remember the parable of the soils, the four different soils? That also explains this passage. Many people will look like they love Jesus Christ. You and me have bumped into them. But they're not willing to give up their sin that is their God. The Hebrews... It was their religion. It was the law. For us today, it could be a lot of things. What keeps people from coming to know God? Most of the time in my journey, I'm telling you the truth, most of the time in my journey, what keep, kept most guys from coming to God was sex. That is the absolute truth. I want to come to know God, but I know what he has to say about this subject, and I'm just going to do what I want, and I can't. I know he's real. I, 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 I believe in him. In fact, I love him, but I'm going to do what I want. And they won't come to him. They won't repent of their sin. That is my experience in all my journey of 40 years of sharing Christ with guys. I'm not saying that's the same thing with girls, but with guys. That prevented them from coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So is there something here that's keeping you from accepting God as your Savior? It would be equivalent to what 
the Hebrew people were dealing with, and that is that tradition, rituals are my safe haven. They're my refuge. This is my comfort zone. Money, position, sex, I'm comfortable here. I'm not comfortable there. And so you leave us. You don't hang around us. You don't want to be around us. You're gone. The parable of the sowers explains this. James will say, some of you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So you can understand very clearly in this passage that you can have all the Christmas ornaments on your house and inside and not believe in Christmas. That is a possibility. Galatians 5, here's one punchline, though, why I want to put this in for this passage that it is talking to unbelievers. Here it is. You ready? Galatians 5, 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law, remember speaking to the Hebrew people, have been alienated from Christ. Here it is. You have fallen away from grace. It is impossible for those who've fallen away to repent of their sin. He's talking to the unbeliever, to these Hebrews that are going back to tradition, to the rituals. It would be like me. I remember going to the priest to confess my sins. I always remember opening that little slide screen. I could barely make them out. I would rattle off all my sins. Good thing he had enough time. And then he would give me my repentance. Go to 10 Hail Marys, 10 Our Fathers, and Act of Contritions. I would do that week in and week out. Felt comfortable, felt relieved. What do you mean I don't have to do that anymore? I'm just talking to someone out in the thin air and, and he's going to forgive me? That, that's what we're dealing with. You have to believe by faith that he's right here, he's right there. And you no longer have to go to a man. You don't have to go to the law. You don't have to go to that high priest that they just exalted. That high priest was like God to them. You must understand. And he's just, Jesus just a common criminal. He's a man that was nailed to a tree. you got to put your heart and mind in, into their shoes. He's talking about those who have fallen away from these truths. Now, the author, I'll finish up rapidly by reading the rest of the verses. Let's go back to this where God reassures believers and encourages us that we're his. See, I believe he takes a pause from telling them about the high priest, and they're confused about their standing with Jesus Christ, and will he really, really pull through on the promise that Jesus is the author of their salvation and the things that they've done afterwards that they're going to be rewarded for them and God's going to keep his promises. So let's read, and I think it'll make sense to you, beginning in verse 7. After we cover those four tough verses, it says this. Land that drinks the rain, often falling on it, produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receiving the blessings of God. 
Talking about the same land now. And, and the blessings come upon this land, the, the miracles, the word of God, the good news, the apostles, the Holy Spirit, and now they produce a bumper crop. But the land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burnt. I believe these two verses reinforce what I've been talking to you about in verses 4 through 6. Then notice the change of crowd in verse 7. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. See, that's the subject. I started in chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. I told you he was talking about salvation, and he now reminds them I'm talking about salvation. Then he goes on to say, God is not unjust that he will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Remember, many of the Jewish people left their home. They had nothing, and they were dependent on the, on the, the tithes and offerings of the saints to help take care of not only the Levites and the priests, but the poor and the widow amongst them and the Jewish people that left their home, and they abandoned everything, and they had nothing, and the saints were contributing to their well-being. And God says, I will not forget what you've done for the saints. Because you're saved, you have done this. And he goes on to say, we want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end. You'll see this throughout Scripture. Endure to the end. Keep doing this to the very end. It just validates who you are in Christ Jesus. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Is he coming back? Don't get lazy that I don't think he's coming back this year or next year or five years from now, ten years from now, so I can go ahead and dibble-dabble in a little bit of sin and I don't have to worry about the things I do for God or give to God. So you become lazy in the things that God wants you to do because you think the second coming may not come for years or may not even come at all. But he reminds them, to be patient about the things he has promised them, that he is coming back, that he will reward them. And then he uses an Old Testament illustration to help nail home his point, that he will fulfill his promises to his people, giving you eternal life, rewarding you for what you've done for the saints in the church. When God made his promises in verse 13 to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Abraham didn't have any descendants at all. So he's listening to the promises of God, like you and me are listening to the promises of God. Will he fulfill his promises? And here's what he said. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Did Abraham mess up while he was waiting for the promise to be fulfilled of that miraculous child named Isaac? Absolutely. He thought he would help God, and he gave birth to, guess who? Ishmael. We're still living with that sin that Abraham committed. You think you've done something bad? How would you like to commit a sin that's been living on for at least two, 3,000 years? By the way, some of our sin does do that. It impacts a lot of people more than we think. 
Abraham believed God, though. Abraham believed God, and he's reminding them, see, I fulfilled my promise to Abraham. I'm going to fulfill my promise to you that I'm coming back for you, and I'm going to reward you. He continues in this promise when he said, men swear, in verse 16, by something greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said, and he puts an end to all arguments. Because God, wanting to make the unchangeable nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs, that's us, of what he promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take a hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Now, because he's explaining it a different way, doesn't mean he's not talking about the same thing. I came, Jesus came to give us the gift of eternal life. Eternal life is found through the Messiah. Yes, through Jesus, who is greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than the prophets, greater than angels. He is our high priest. And now he comes full circle and goes back to the subject of high priest. Notice and Jacob will pick up on this next week in verse 19 and 20. We have this hope that I just promise you is going to take place as an anchor for our soul or for the soul. Firm and secure, this hope enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. The Jewish people were forbidden to know what was behind there, to go into there, except the high priest. It says, where Jesus, yes, this guy that you think's a criminal, that everybody's been telling you is a criminal, he's just a mere man, don't believe in him, this is Yeshua, he's the high priest, he went and gave his life as a sacrifice, he ripped open the veil, he said, you now have access to God because of me, because of Jesus, he is the anchor of your soul. Jesus, who went before us, he entered on our behalf and has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As we finish this morning, I pray that if you're here today and you, you go to these passages and people tell you that you've committed the unpardonable sin, I want to tell you that a Christian cannot commit an unpardonable sin. I just reinforce that with Scripture. Can a Christian commit a sin unto death? Yes. So the warning to us is listen to the Holy Spirit when he convicts you and me of our sin and take advantage of God's mercy and his forgiveness. So if you're here this morning and you are backslidden or you're looking in online this morning and you have been backslidden, you have embraced the things of the world, the wine, the woman, the dance, the power, the prestige, the position, and you have gone back to those things, you can turn back to God, repent of your sins, and he will embrace you as his child. And you will divert a slew of problems and troubles in your life. If you're an unbeliever, and we've had unbelievers here sitting in our midst, who knew better and would not give their lives to God for some unknown reason. There could come a time when it will be impossible for you 
But turn to God because you've turned away, turned away, turned away, turned away. That's the warning in this passage. You've turned away, you've turned away to finally where God quits convicting you of sin. Remember, the only way you can be saved is if the Holy Spirit convicts you and me of sin. There could come a time where you will no longer, like Esau, or like Judas. Judas repented, but he, the object of his repentance was not the Messiah. It was just in himself. I repent what I did. I shouldn't have done this. Kind of like when I was lost and got caught by the cops for stealing. I repented because I didn't like the consequence and the punishment. But I didn't repent in my relationship with God. If you've sinned, you owe it to God to repent of your sin this morning. That's the good news. If you're here and you've not ever turned your life over to him, today is the day of salvation. You need to do it before it's too late. Jacob's going to come up in a moment after I pray and give you a chance to make that decision. So, Father, I pray today for the believer who thinks they might have committed a sin to the point of no return. If they're listening and they're here and they're alive, then it's not them you're speaking about. They're listening to you. Would you encourage them that you're there with open arms, willing to forgive them of all their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness? And remind the believer if he walks in the light or embraces what's being said, agrees with you with what's being said, that he or she is constantly being cleansed of their unrighteousness. And for the person that's sitting on the fence wondering, do I dive in all the way in this thing called Christianity? Encourage them to make that decision this morning, Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Would you stand at this time as Jacob comes to the front and leads you in a time of possible Thanks salvation. so much for listening to this podcast. Church, can we thank if God this has for blessed you, would you consider giving a financial gift to help bring this message to more people? You can do that at vlcministries.com slash give. You can also subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Here's what we believe. Living God's way. Everywhere, every way, every day. We love you and God bless.